All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your endless uh, grace towards us and your love for us. Uh, thank you for this time to fellowship and to worship you and to know you deeper, to know you according to your word. We pray that uh, we would get to know you deeper and that you would fill us with wisdom and the knowledge of you. And we thank you for your grace and amen. So today we're continuing our series called the GCF Vision. Um, you know, the vision or the GCF vision is a term we use a lot, but until this teaching, we haven't done a thorough series or teaching on it in a while, at least since Greg was teaching at RCF. Uh, and so the, the GCF vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And really, that shouldn't sound strange because this has been going on for hundreds of years, like at least back to the, the Reformation in the 1500s. This is just an ongoing thing God is doing. Um, but there's five things that we're focusing on in this series that we believe God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. Number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel Number two, being grace-based instead of performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. Uh, so we just recently wrapped up our subsection of this series on being reformed and charismatic. That was a bit longer than I expected it to be, but it was worth it. Um, so today we are starting... Part four of the series, Understanding the Role, Relevance, and Responsibilities of the Church. So this part, I'm kind of guessing, will be about eight sermons long or so. It's kind of hard to guesstimate, but that's, that's what I'm going for. So we're going to start off today by talking about the role of the church, so in order to understand the role of the church, we have to understand how the Bible describes the church in general. And when the Bible describes what the church is and what God's role for it and what his desires for it are, it tends to do so using word pictures. Uh, so... In this part of this series, we're not going to get into all the word pictures the Bible uses to describe the church, uh, because that would be more comprehensive than what we have time to go for in this series. Uh, but we are going to look at eight of them, and today we're going to look at four of them. And then next week we'll look at a different four. So for our trying to understand the role of the church, we're starting with trying to understand how God describes the church. And we're looking at the word pictures he uses. And we're going to look at four of them. So the first one I want to look at is God's chosen people. The Bible describes the church as God's chosen people. Uh, let's look at some verses that show that. First uh, Peter verse, chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, Peter is actually more or less quoting a passage from Exodus, but he's, Peter is applying it to the church. Peter is saying that this is talking about the church. And we can look at that, that same passage, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. 
for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So we see that uh, the church is God's treasured possession, his chosen people, his treasured people. Let's also look at Psalm 83, verse 3. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. You know, this first kind of shows in passing that God's people, God's people are his treasured possession. God greatly values his church. That's something we're going to see multiple times while looking at these word pictures, looking at these descriptions, is that God greatly values his church. God greatly loves and delights in his people as a people and as individuals. So what can we learn from this picture? What, what does this mean? What significance does it have? Because, you know, when... When trying to see how the Bible describes the church through word pictures, we're going to have to think about each one and be like, well, what does that mean? What's the significance of us being God's chosen people or his treasured possession? So there's, there's two things that I want us to learn from this idea that the church is God's chosen people. Uh, the first one is that God treasures his people and he delights in us. Let's look at Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, I believe this parable has a double meaning. It has two correct interpretations. One of them is that this is how um, God's people will respond. This is those whom God has predestined will respond to the message of the gospel. They will eventually come to consider it the most important thing in life, and they will be willing to sell all that they have for it. But this, there's another valid interpretation of this, because God often um, inspires passages that have multiple non-contradicting correct interpretations and the other correct interpretation is this is how Jesus feels about his church. He came to earth and he gave all that he had for love, for joy, for the joy set before him. And the joy set before him was obtaining his church, his bride. So God treasures us and delights in us. He delights in us as individuals, but as we're going to see in a second, he also has a particular delight in us as a group. And we're going to talk about that in more detail as we go along. So the next idea I want us to learn from this word picture that we are God's chosen people and that his chosen people are his treasured possession is that God wants a people for himself. So throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is drawing together those whom he is saving. He doesn't just save people and send them off to do their own thing by themselves and finally be alone. That's, that's not what God is after. God didn't bring the Israelites out of Egypt and then send them off to do their own thing alone. And throughout the entire New Testament, we see a huge emphasis throughout every book in the New Testament on being a part of the church. 
God doesn't just want to save millions or billions of people. He wants to save them and bring them together as a unified group that worships and loves him together as one people. Let's look at John 17, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Throughout the Bible, God is seeking to have a people who worship him. And there's a reason for that distinction. There's a reason that God doesn't just want millions of or billions of separate individuals who aren't one who worship him. There's a reason he wants a group of people who are one who worship him. I also want to point out, the Bible never says that you as an individual are the bride of Christ. And there's a reason for that. The Bible says that the church collectively is the bride of Christ. And uh, in Greek, so there, there's a plural you and there's a singular you. And in English, we just have you. And in some states, we have y'all. And those may or may not mean totally the same thing, depending on the context. But, um, yeah. <laughs> because the um, y'all could also mean every individual within the group, but plural you in the Greek could be referring to the group as an entity, depending on the context. But the Bible never says that you as an individual are the bride of Christ. The Bible says that the church collectively is a bride, the bride of Christ because God wants a people for himself. So those are the two things I want us to get from uh, the church is God's chosen people. The second word picture that the Bible uses to describe the church is that the Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. Let's look at Ephesians 5 verses 25 and thir- through 32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Just as a small side note, that kind of alludes to the idea that there can be multiple valid, non-contradictory interpretations to one passage. The passage in Genesis 2 was referring to Adam and Eve, but Paul says by the Holy Spirit it's referring to Christ and his church. So anyways, the church is the bride of Christ. But what does that mean? What's the significance? What are we supposed to get out of that? The first thing is that God loves his church and delights in us. And again, this is a theme we're just going to continue to see throughout the scriptures because God's church 
no matter how many blemishes we have, is deeply, deeply important to him. Regardless of the myriad of blemishes we currently have. The entire book of the Song of Solomon passionately expresses that idea, that notion, that God's church is very important to him. Let's look at uh, Song of Solomon chapter 7, verse 6. Oh, how beautiful you are. How pleasing, my love. How full of delights. And also, let's look at Song of Solomon, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 10. Who is this that looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? These things are how Christ feels about his church. God's church is as awesome as an army with banners because God's church is an army. But we'll get to that next week. But God greatly, greatly delights in his church. All that God has been doing throughout redemptive history has been to build, to gather, to obtain a church, a people for himself. So it is very important to him. But the second thing I want us to get uh, out of to glean from the word picture that the church is the bride of Christ, is that God desires intimacy with us. That should be inescapable when thinking about the idea of marriage. Let's look at John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christ doesn't just want a trophy bride, as they say. Christ wants a bride who knows him, who's with him where he is and is intimate with him, who sees him and knows him. Christ wants intimacy with his church. He wants a church that knows him and that fellowships with him. And the very idea that God would use marriage to describe his relationship with his church just shows that. Because God purposefully designed marriage to be the most intimate of human relationships. There isn't a single type of human relationship that's more intimate than marriage. And not only that, but we can see in the account of creation that God designed marriage with intimacy in mind. You know, God could have just made Adam and Eve together at the same time, but he decided to wait. Uh, And the reason he decided to wait is because he wanted it to be seen, he wanted it to be shown that it was not good that Adam was alone. He wanted that to be pointed out. And in pointing that out and then creating Eve, he shows that a big part of his design for marriage is for intimacy, And then in using marriage to describe his relationship with his church, he's showing that he desires intimacy with his people. He doesn't just desire to be our Lord, he also desires to be our husband. He desires closeness with us. All 
All right, so we've looked at how the church is God's chosen people and the church is the bride of Christ. The next word picture I want us to look at uh, to try to get an idea of what the church is and God's role for the church is the word picture that the church is the temple of God. Let's look at 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now we run into the you problem again. But notice, he didn't say you are God's temples. You are God's temple. And, you know, it's you plural. But if if he was saying everyone individually is temples because the Holy Spirit indwells us, and that was meant to be the extent of it, he would have used temple as plural. He would have said, you are God's temples. But he said, you, the group, the church, are God's temple, one singular item. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Let's also look at First Peter uh, chapter two, verses four through six. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What is this referring to? This is referring to the analogy that the church is God's temple. Each member of the church is like a living stone being built up upon Christ into the temple of God. And lastly, let's look at Ephesians 2, uh, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being jointed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we all, as members of the church, being jointed together, are growing into the holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean? What are we supposed to get out of this idea that the church is the temple of God? What significance does that have? Um, I think I have two things, uh, two or three things that I want us to, to glean from this idea that the, temple is, the church of God is the temple of God. But the church is where God dwells. That's the first one. The church is where God dwells. The word picture of the church being the temple of God is used to show that the church is where God dwells, and God dwelling among us is an aspect of intimacy. When a husband and a wife get married, they make their dwelling together. They move in together. 
and that's an aspect of intimacy with one another. Um, marriage would be not nearly as cool if you got married and just kept living in separate houses. That sounds a bit messed up. It doesn't sound as intimate. But we see God's intention to have intimacy with us, that he wants to dwell among us, and not only among us, but inside of us. Inside of us as individuals and as a group. That's part of his intention to have intimacy with us. That's an example of his intention to be intimate with us. But somewhat almost more important that I want us to get is that the church is where we meet God. The church is where God's presence dwells. If you want to meet someone, in general, you can go to their house, you can go to where they live, and you can meet them there. And the church is where God dwells, and we can meet him there. Now, that might sound very abstract, but that's actually really practical. Let's look at Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So Jesus is saying that God's presence is there in a special way when even two believers are gathered in his name. In a tangible, real, special way. I do also want to point out that he he didn't just say whenever there are two or more believers together. He said when two or three are gathered in my name. And I I tend to interpret in my name as like I do with, um, you know, praying in Jesus' name by his authority and for his sake. So when believers gather not just to watch football or to play checkers, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but... uh, When we gather together to worship, to pray, to edify each other, to encourage each other, to comfort each other, to do the things that God wants us to do together, that's gathering in his name. And when believers get together to do these things, when we gather in Jesus' name, we can encounter God's presence in a special way, in a way to to a real degree that in some sense we can't otherwise, that we can't without other believers. On Friday, I got to go, um, downtown Dayton had a big worship concert with multiple churches gathered together, and you could just tell, like, an atmosphere of God's presence. Something special is there, because multiple churches, hundreds of believers gathered in Jesus' name. They gathered to worship him, and to pray, and to make an impact on their city. So one thing we should get from the idea that the church is the temple of God is the church is where we meet God. Even if we're believers and we already know God and we've already met him, the church is still where we meet God. And that's not just some abstract theoretical idea. That's real. And that's very important. When we sing better is you know, one day in your courts, better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. What that should mean to us when we think about it is better is one day gathered with other believers to worship you. 
then thousands of days not gathered with other believers, not to worship you. The church is where we meet God. Uh, The other thing I want us to get from this idea that the church is the temple of God is that we all have a part to play in the church. So uh, in 1 Peter, Peter says that each Christian is like a living stone in God's temple. So in a temple, or any building for that matter, you don't want any of the bricks to be missing. And you might feel like, well, one brick, it's just one brick, But no, you don't want any of the bricks to be missing. Any of them. Every Christian has a role to play in the church, period. And this is a theme throughout the scriptures, that even though we all have different roles and different gifts, and some may appear more or less significant than others, every single role is important to God. Let's look at Mark 12, uh, verses 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting in money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And she called... And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. But most of the time, especially in the United States, because we have such an emphasis on our culture, on the individual, and on becoming a leader... Um, we would probably in that case, you know, if our gifts are like that, if we feel that our role in the church is like that woman with her, her two copper coins that together equates to a penny, we would probably tend to feel like my role isn't important, doesn't make a big difference, doesn't really matter whether or not I do it, isn't going to make a difference to God, isn't going to make a difference to others. We're going to get to how it does make a difference to others, but it sure makes a difference to God. Be assured of that. Jesus, who is God, looked at this woman and said, she put in more than they did. No role in the church is small to God. Let's also look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12. For if the readiness is there... So this is another passage talking about giving, but there's a general principle to be gained from it that applies to serving as well and applies to our roles. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. We, sh- we need to apply this idea to our thinking about serving in the church. We tend to think, well, I don't have much to offer, I don't have much to contribute, which, by the way, quite likely is not true on a practical level anyways, even if you think it is. But moreover, even if it were true, it wouldn't matter. It'd be irrelevant. It'd be irrelevant to God. Because God says it's acceptable that a person gives according to what they have, not according to what they do not have. Let's uh, lastly look at Luke 12, uh, 48, um, the second part of that verse. 
Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from whom, whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. So, I mean, these three passages we've looked at together just show this general principle that's in the scriptures that um, it's not about how much you have to give. It's about whether or not you're faithful to do well with what God gave you. Even if a person does have a smaller role to play when compared to others, which half the time we exaggerate that when we feel like that anyways, but even if a person really does have a role that's comparatively smaller, that doesn't make it any less important to God. So one example I was thinking of, it might not be the best example, but a few times a month I pay John Luke to mow my lawn because I don't like to mow the lawn. And... um, And Jeremiah is not quite ready to help in the kitchen, but soon he'll be ready to help in the kitchen. And when he is, John Luke's mowing my lawn is going to accomplish more for me on a practical level than Jeremiah helping in the kitchen. But I'm not going to value Jeremiah's helping in the kitchen any less than I would value John Luke mowing my lawn. God doesn't need any of us. God doesn't... The most skilled person who accomplishes the most for God's kingdom, God didn't need one lick of their help. So if we shouldn't feel like God doesn't value our role just because it doesn't appear as significant, or even if it, in all reality, wasn't as significant, it'd still be just as important to God. So that being said, I also want us to consider the Bible is very clear that we each do have a role to play in the church, or maybe multiple roles in different seasons, or different roles in different seasons. But everybody has a role to play in the church. Every Christian has a role to play in the church, that is. And we need to be thinking about what that is, because if we don't think about it, we'll probably miss it. You know, if you have a job, but you don't think about your job, you don't think about what time it starts and ends and what the job description is and what you're supposed to do, you probably aren't doing your job. So in the handouts uh, that you have in your bulletin or that you got with your bulletin, I have some, some questions and some space to write, though you'll probably want more space than that. But this is something I would recommend filling out, um, you know, later today. But these are some questions that we should all think about. How can I serve in the church? What manifestation, spiritual gifts, or which gifts from 1 Corinthians 12 does God want me to be regularly using? Because It's implied in 1 Corinthians 12 that even though God can give any gift at any point in time to any person for that point in time, that in general, each believer will walk in one gift more than the others with the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, which we should all be walking in. But what manifestation spiritual gift does God want me to be regularly losing? How can I be a blessing to others in my local church? How can I help others grow spiritually? How can I encourage others? The command to 
It is a command to encourage others in the church, and it's not just a command to people with the gift of encouragement, it's a command to everyone. How can I encourage others? How can I contribute to other people's lives by regularly praying for them? That's just worth thinking about, um, because we probably tend to think that it's much lower than it is. How much do you think God... How much do you think you could contribute to others' lives by regularly praying for them? It's probably more than you would have thought about if you haven't taken the time to think about it. Because God is very much willing and wanting to do great and many things through prayer. But these are things we should all think about. We all need to be thinking about what our role in the church is. And how we can contribute. So the last word picture we're going to look at today that the Bible uses to describe the church is the family of God. The church is the family of God. Let's look at 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Let's also look at Ephesians 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And Galatians 4, verses 5 through 7. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And lastly, John 1, verse 12. But to to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So it's, it's clear in the scriptures, it's a reoccurring pattern, it's a theme, it's a word picture, that the church is God's family. The church is the family of God. God the Father is the Father, God the Son is the eldest brother, and we are all, you know, God the Father's children, and Christ is our brother. So what's the significance of that? What are we supposed to learn from that? Uh, The first thing is that God loves and delights in his church. It's a recurring theme, we're going to keep seeing it, but God really loves and delights in his church, and his church is very important to him. Uh, The second thing I want us to learn from this idea that the church is the family of God is that God cares about our relationships with each other. Fathers don't merely want to have good relationships with their children. They also want their children to get along and have good relationships with each other. And God wants that for us as well. Uh, Let's look at John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's look at Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, Galatians 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. 
Let us do good to everyone, but especially to brothers and sisters in Christ. If you haven't noticed it before, I just want to point out that it's in this verse in Galatians 6, chapter 10. It is important that we love everyone, and it's even more important that we love those who are in the church. God sets it apart as distinct. It's important to God that we love everyone, and it's even more important to him that we love those who are in the church. And it's important that we aren't bitter and that we forgive especially those in the church. Let's look at Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. If you're, you know, about to take communion, and you realize you have bitterness towards a brother or sister in Christ... Don't take communion until you've forgiven that. Now, I don't mean don't take communion because you, the proper response is to forgive them, not to just stop taking communion. You can forgive them. You must forgive them. You should just do it. But God wants us to forgive one another, to, have, to get along with each other, to have good relationships. And it's, it's very important to him that we have good relationships as his children. Uh, the last thing that I want us to glean from this picture that the church is the family of God is that the Father's relationship with us is meant to be like his relationship with Christ. So God doesn't just use this analogy only to say that his relationship with us is like that of an earthly father with their children. That's part of it, but that's not the big picture. The more significant reason is to show that his relationship with us is, to, is meant to be like his relationship with God the Son. Let's look at some verses that kind of hint at that. Uh, John 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Let's look at Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And lastly, let's look at John 17, verses 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Um, that's not the right one. Hmm. Oh, no, it is. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should have just included 23. The, that the world may know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. This is an amazing passage. The idea that God the Father loves his church, his people, even as he loves God the Son. So this idea that the church is the family of God, one of the things we should learn from that is that the Father's relationship with us is meant to be like his relationship with Christ. And that's the clearest reason we know God wants us to have intimacy with him. 
because God the Father greatly enjoys his relationship, his fellowship with God the Son. So those are the four pictures, word pictures, we're going to look at today. We'll give a quick summary, and then we'll get to our communion meditation. So in summary, um, in trying to build a picture or a description of the church, there's, there's two points I want to give in summary. The church is God's chosen people whom he treasures, loves, and delights in. That's a very important idea because it comes across so many times. The church is God's chosen people whom he treasures and loves passionately and delights in. And the second point I want us to get is the church is a community that glorifies God as a community. No individual is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. We glorify God as a community, and the community aspect is very important and has much synergistic power to it. God wants us, God would prefer that we worship him as a community as opposed to merely worshiping each one on their own. There is synergy to it. Synergy is the idea that, um, you know, when the idea that two things working together create more than just the sum of what they would individually. And the church is like that. God wants us to fellowship with him and worship him as a community. So let's get to our communion meditation. Today's communion meditation is Christ saves us into his church. Let's look at Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So God has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom. But kingdoms always have multiple people. And one aspect of how he's transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom is that he's transferred us into his church. And that is a great thing for us. That is part of the package of salvation. And granted, there will be problems that you'll have living in church community, but life is better with those problems than it would be to have life without church community. I would much prefer to have people I disagree with and who disagree with me and I have to forgive them and they have to forgive me than to not have brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is part of God's package of salvation. It's not just forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is very important and maybe the most important because being part of the church wouldn't be all that great if your sins weren't forgiven because, you know, nothing would mean anything if your sins weren't forgiven. But the church is part of God's salvation. God didn't just save us to be eternally alone or eternally just with him. That would go against our design. We'd actually be somewhat unfulfilled if that were the case. Because God designed us not just for relationship with him, but for relationships with others. Let's look at Psalm 68, verse 6. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious live in parched lands. This is part of God's salvation that for the world is the church. And 
if we only have forgiveness of sins, but we don't ever receive the great gift of being a part of his church, we are really missing part of his gift of salvation, part of the complete package. So let's praise him as we come to the table.